encourage you to take your Bible, and we're going to start in a different place. We're going to encourage you to turn over in 2 Timothy 6, and we'll get to that in just a few moments. But we're going to talk today about the certainty of Jesus' second advent. Did you know that Joy to the World is not written as a Christmas carol? In its original form, it had nothing to do with Christmas. It wasn't even written to be a song when it was first penned by Isaac Watts. He was one of the great hymn writers in the church history, but I guess nothing shows that better the fact that he wrote one of his most favorite hymns by accident in 1719. Watts published a book of poems in which each poem was based on a book of psalm, or one of the psalms in, in the book of psalms. But rather than just translate the original Old Testament text, he adjusted them to refer explicitly, explicitly to the work of Jesus as it's been revealed in the New Testament. One of those poems was an adaptation of Psalm 98. Isaac Watts interpreted this psalm as a celebration of Jesus' role as king of both his church and his whole world. And more than a century later, the second half of this poem was slightly adapted and set the music to give us what has become one of the most famous of all Christmas carols. And you see that up on the screen. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing and heaven and heaven and nature sing. The second verse says, joy to the earth, the savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. So as we are closing out the book of 2 Peter, if two more messages after today. Peter's sharing with us what will happen at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. And he'll share in great detail what's going to happen to the terra firma that we are standing on even today. After we finish our study, Austin will preach in one week in November 13th, and then we'll be on to Thanksgiving and the Christmas season. We got an exciting Christmas season planned as we think about Christ's first advent his birth, and you think about how from November 27th through Christmas Day, we'll be talking about the creeds of Christmas. And I'm looking forward to all that will occur in that great season of the year. But the first advent of Jesus ended with his ascension into heaven. And a promise was given to us by the angels that were around him. In Acts chapter 1, you can look at these verses on the screen. Verse 8, Jesus said, at least from this perspective in Acts, his last words, on planet earth, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taking up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So we turn today to Peter's admonition on how to live in light of Christ's return and knowing that God is going to destroy this planet and rebuild it. God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth that will be and remain absolutely righteous and perfect. Many call it the eternal state. So for our scripture reading, look at 2 Timothy chapter 6. Paul is giving wise advice to Timothy. 
his son into faith on how to live in light of Christ's second coming. In 2 Timothy 6, verse 11, it says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, and we pause there, speaking that he was the truth, because Pontius Pilate says, what is truth? And Jesus said, I am. And then he says there, verse 14, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words and your very word of God. We thank you for this love letter that's written to us. We thank you that how personally it can transform each and every life, how it knows, it's a living word, how it knows the needs of our heart and life and that the word of God speaks to those things. And so as we open your word today, help us to have open minds and open hearts to receive what you have for us today. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna look at two main points this morning. First point, Peter wants us to always remember is living with an understanding of who God is. If you haven't already, turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. We'll look at verses 8 through 13, and we'll finish the book next week, and then we'll do a summary the week after of these two great books of the Bible. Living with an understanding of who God is. In 2 Peter 3, 8, Peter says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. We take from that, first of all, that the Lord is timeless. He is eternal. He's timeless. Peter says, don't forget this one very important fact. And he said, beloved, again, he's speaking to those who've uh, been scattered out of Jerusalem, Gentiles and Jews alike, who are believers, but are under persecution in other parts of the Roman Empire in the known world. And so... Just a reminder that we as human beings see time against time or time in comparison to time while God sees time in regard to eternity. Remember that God is eternal and he's outside of time. And so when God sees the beginning of the world and the end of the world, he can see it all at one time because he is outside of it. For us as humans, time may seem very long, but we have a limited perspective due to our humanity. To God, the universe is just a few days old and scoffers and mockers forget that. In verse eight here, he's, Peter's quoting from Psalm 90, verse four. He says, for a thousand years, the psalmist says in your sight are but as yesterday and when it is past or as a watch in the night. The delay in Christ's return is a human problem, not God's problem. 
God is never in a hurry, never late, as Toby Mac says in one of his songs. God could have created the world in one day, but he chose to do it in six days. You think about, you think about Moses, and God took a lot of time with him. Forty years, he was there under Pharaoh's service, killed an Egyptian, and then he fled, right? And he was on the backside of the desert for another 40 years, and God was teaching him. And then he called him to be the deliverer, to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And of course, that took some time as well. And he walked with them, and then he walked with them through the wilderness. It took time, and God had a purpose and a plan that he was executing as he worked through that time period. We think about um, others in the Bible. Think about Jesus. Jesus could have come sooner in history. But notice what it says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God's exact moment on his eternal calendar, Jesus came in to the Roman Empire, to the Jewish people at that time. God sent forth the Son, born of woman, born under the law. The point is God is not living on our schedule or limited by time. We are left with being patient and trusting in God's promises and his sovereignty to care for us. And he's always looking out for the best interests in our lives. Second of all, this verse tells us the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Notice that word slow in this verse. Slow means to hesitate, to linger, to delay. And it's the only time it's used in the Bible is right here in this verse. This is God's patience on display for mankind's good. It shows an extra measure of God's grace, of his compassion, of his love, and his mercy. Another aspect of God's patience is that he is storing up his wrath and his anger. You know, my kids, my grandkids and my kids, we like to go up to Wisconsin Dells and we like to go to the water parks, Great Wolf Lodge. And uh, my oldest grandson, Christopher, he loves to get under that big, big bucket. And you get under there and it, the water's filling and it's filling and it's filling. And then all of a sudden, when it reaches the tipping point, it goes over. And that's a picture of what this is, that God is storing up his wrath storing up his anger. He's waiting graciously, compassionately. But don't be confused that at some point he's going to come and bring his judgment. And we think of Noah and the patience that he showed with the people who were corrupt at that time. Noah was building that ark for approximately 120 years. The New Testament said that he was a preacher of righteousness. So he wasn't just building the ark, he was preaching to them about the fact that a judgment was coming and that they could get into this boat. And of course, when the time came, God sealed it. Only eight people were on the boat with the animals and God poured out his wrath on mankind. We think of Jonah and how much patience God had for Nineveh. You know, Jonah went as far away from God's will as he could. He bought a ticket, he went to Tarshish, he ended up in a, in a big fish, and all this time, God was saying he was going to bring judgment on Nineveh, but he waited because Jonah didn't want to go and see those people get saved. And finally, he did. 
before God poured out his wrath. We see that God's timing is always perfect, even if we don't always understand it. But it's for the grace of man, for men to have the opportunity to be saved. It says at the end of that verse 9 to reach repentance. Reach repentance. God does not want to see people go to hell, even those who reject him. But to maintain his justice, they perish if they reject Christ. He wants to give people as much time and opportunity to receive him and to become a mature follower of Christ. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32, God says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. 2 Timothy 2, 4 says, Who desires, God does, all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God truly knows who he's elected to be saved, and in his foreknowledge, he knows who will accept the message of the gospel and come to faith in Christ. He knows who will receive the gift of repentance that he gives out. He desires to see people leave the wrath of God, as it tells us in John 3.36, that those who are non-believers have the wrath of God abiding on them, but he wants to save them out of that wrath and have them be born again and see his wrath appeased by those trusting in the shed blood of Christ and the finished work of Christ on the cross. So as you review Peter's arguments, you can see in chapter 3, his, his evidence is irrefutable. He pointed out that the scoffers willfully rejected evidence in order that they might continue in their sin and their scoffing. He proved from the scriptures that God intervened in past history and that he has the power and the ability to do the same today. He showed that the scoffers had a very low view of God's character because they thought he delayed in keeping his promises just as men do. And finally, he explained that God does not live in the realm of human time and that his so-called delay only gives more opportunity for lost sinners to be born again. Thirdly, we see the Lord is timeless, the Lord is gracious, but the Lord will judge. The Lord will judge. Look at verse 10, if you would. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Let's review very quickly some of what will happen in the future when it comes to last time events. And Brendan, you put that Next slide up there. There's a chart, and we don't have time to go through that. And this is from the premillennial, pre-tribulational perspective. But you see the cross there. You see we're in the church age. You see if you believe that the rapture is going to occur before the tribulation, that happens there. And then believers will be at the judgment seat of Christ. They'll be at the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven while the great tribulation is going on down here on earth. And then Jesus will make his second coming, his second return, and he will come and he will judge all the living nations in the valley of Megiddo. He will set up his 1,000-year reign in Jerusalem. And then at the end of that period, uh, he will uh, bring all the dead back and he will separate the sheep from the goats, the believers from the non-believers. He will cast the non-believers into the lake of fire with Satan, Antichrist, the false prophet, all those people. And then, as we're going to talk about now, the new heaven and the new earth will be created. So Peter here skips talking about the millennial reign of Christ and goes straight to the day of the Lord. 
He's giving us the larger panoramic view of the end times. The day of the Lord will be the most devastating and worldwide destructive event ever known to man. It'll be in two stages. One is that seven-year great tribulation period that we read a lot about from Revelation 6 to chapter 19. And then the second stage, which we're going to look at today here in 2 Peter 3, the earth will be destroyed by extreme heat. It says there in verse 10, it will come like a thief, or as Jesus says, a thief in the night. Jesus will return when you least expect him. When the world feels like it has everything under control with man-centered approaches, that's when Jesus will return. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says this, for you, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and there's security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Just like a robber doesn't announce his coming, so Jesus will come out of heaven suddenly without any warning or preparation. It says in Revelation 19 that he'll be riding on a horse. It tells us in Matthew 24 that he will split the eastern skies. He will come from the direction the sun rises and he will ride in on a horse. And in Revelation 19, it says that a sword will come out of his mouth, the very word of God, to slay those people in the valley of Megiddo at the battle of Armageddon who were gathered to destroy, ultimately destroy the Jewish people. And then Jesus will set up his thousand year reign in Jerusalem before that final end of earth and heaven happened. And after the great white throne judgment, God will pour out his wrath and destructive forces on the earth with extreme heat. It says the heavens will pass away, not the place of God's abode, but the skies, the physical universe, the interstellar, the intergalactic space. God will uncreate what he created. Commentator Kenneth Weiss gives us an accurate and graphic translation of 2 Peter 3.10. He says, in which the heavens with a rushing noise will be dissolved and the elements being scorched will be dissolved and the earth also and the works in it will be burned up. Many Bible students believe that Peter here described the action of atomic energy being released by God. The word translated great noise in the King James Version means with a hissing and a crackling sound. When they tested atomic bombs in the Nevada desert, one reporter said the explosion gave forth a whizzing sound or a crackling sound. The Greek word Peter used was commonly used by the people of that day of the whirring of birds' wings or the hissing of a snake. The word disintegrates in verse 10 here means to melt, to be dissolved. It carries the idea of something being broken down to its basic elements, and that's what happens when atomic energy is released. Heaven and earth will pass away, said our Lord in Matthew 24, 35. And it appears this may happen by the release of atomic power stored in the elements that make up the world. The heavens and the earth are stored with fire, as it tells us in verse 7 of the same chapter. And only God can release it. And so while President Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin have recently talked about the nuclear threat, much like the 1962 missile crisis, I feel certain that even if they use nuclear weapons, they will not de destroy the entire planet. And Warren Wiersbe concurs and says the same thing. For this reason, 
I do not personally believe that God will permit sinful men to engage in an earth-destroying atomic war. He will, I believe, overrule the ignorance and foolishness of men, including well-meaning but unbelieving diplomats and politicians, so that God alone will have the privilege of pushing the button and dissolving the elements to make way for a new heaven and a new earth. Here's some verses in the Bible that talk about this great explosion, this great event that's going to occur at the end of the great white throne judgment. Isaiah 13 says, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Isaiah 24, 19 says, The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. In Isaiah 34, he says, All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from a fig tree. Man's great works will all be burned up. All the things that men boast about, the great cities they built, the great buildings, the amazing inventions, man's achievements will be destroyed in a moment of time. And when sinners stand before the throne of God, they will have nothing to point to as evidence of their greatness. It will all be gone. In 2 Peter 3.13, which is a verse we'll get to at the end of this message, but it fits here as well, it says, but according to God's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which the righteousness dwells. Take your Bible, turn over to Revelation 21. Told you a lot of the bad news and the destructive things are going to occur. But here's what's going to happen as God rebuilds planet earth, rebuilds the heavens. Revelation 21, great words of promise I often read at a funeral. Verse 1, John having this vision says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's going to be a beautiful, beautiful thing. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And I love verse 5. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is certainly a solemn truth, and we dare not study it in a cavalier fashion. But in the remaining verses of this letter, he's going to Tell us, how, tell us how we are to live in light of this understanding of what's going to happen in the future. It would be wise for us to pause now and consider where will we be when God destroys the world? Is what I'm living for only destined to go up in an atomic cloud to vanish forever? Or am I doing the will of God so that my works will glorify him forever and those works will continue on and people who we've led to Christ and invested in in this life. 
I encourage you to make your decision now before it's too late. So our application here is this. Are you thankful for God's patience and compassion towards you? He's not slow. He's not tardy. God's always on time. Just so happens it's not on our schedule most of the time. But don't become apathetic because of his grace, his patience, and his compassion. He's giving us more time to grow in him. He's giving more time for people to come to faith in Christ. How now do we live in light of Jesus' soon return? Peter pivots now and talks to the believer. says, knowing all this, this is how you should live. In 2 Peter 3.11, living with an understanding of Christ's return. Living with an understanding of Christ's return. Look at verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Live holy and godly lives. Live holy and godly lives. He gives us a rhetorical question. He says, what sort of people ought you to be? It can be better translated this, how how astonishingly excellent you ought to be because of who you are in Christ, because you were holy, because you're living to be godly. Peter's saying we must live out what we believe. I think sometimes we debate too much on prophecy and things that we cannot answer in this lifetime. We can take different views on when Jesus will return. Some believe it's before the tribulation. Some believe it's in the middle. Some it's just before Jesus comes back the second time. Some believe there isn't a rapture. We just usher in, the amillennialists believe we usher in Christ's kingdom. But the thing we all agree on is that Jesus is physically going to return to planet Earth. And it tells us in Zechariah chapter 4 that the very same place that he lifted his foot at the Mount of Olives, he's going to come down. And Zechariah 4 says that it's going to, the ground's going to split and it's going to create a great earthquake when he touches down on planet Earth. So the thing is that we like debate. And the question is, are we obeying what we already have been revealed to us and that we understand? I love this Mark Twain quote. It's, he says, it's not the things which I do not understand in the Bible which trouble me, but the things which I do understand. Are we doing what we already know? That's what God wants us to obey. And the purpose of prophecy is not to create and debate based on our speculations, if the Antichrist is already alive, if the Red Bull is already alive, but motivate us to live for him in preparation for his return. These things here leave no room for apathy or despair, but for us as a believer, it should provide hope excitement and the thrill that we're going to see our Savior face to face, the one who have the nail-scarred hands and the side split from the sword, we're going to see him face to face in his glorified bodies. It says that ought, you ought to live this way. It's in the present tense. It means to continually keep walking in holiness and godliness, out of compulsion, out of love, out of obligation, to live in this world and be a foreigner, be someone that's peculiar and different. In Hebrews chapter 11, which is the great chapter of the faithful, the hall of the faithful ones, it says this, and these verses always grab me when I read them. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, 
But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They never thought their role was all about here. Verse 14, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Guess what? God has prepared a city for you. A dwelling place in John 14. Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. So that's why we keep our eyes on heaven, our eyes of faith on the one who's the the author and the finisher of our faith. We are dual citizens of earth and heaven. In Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Two weeks from Tuesday, November 8th is a day to vote. And as a citizen, we should take care of that opportunity and take advantage of that opportunity. It's a right for us as a citizen on this planet. We're to be good citizens here, godly and living righteous lives. But we also realize that this world is not eternal. And being different from the world attracts people to the gospel and makes people curious to ask us about the hope that's within us. Holiness means to live a life separated from the things of this world that would take us away from glorifying God. We're told in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, that God is holy, and so we are to be holy as he is holy. Godliness here means that we worship well. I love that Greek term there, worship well. That means we're devoted to pleasing God no matter what happens in our lives. We worship well. In 1 Peter 1, 6-7, he said, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We say in that great song, the Revelation song, we're going to stand before him. And our faith in him, it's going to be revealed in praise and glory and honor. We're to live with an expectation of the coming day of God. In 2 Peter 3.12, it says, Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. As a point of reference, verse 12 concludes the day of the Lord and the horrific destruction that began with the great tribulation and then ends with the fiery disintegration of the earth as we know it, and we enter into this eternal state, this place of rest. Many commentators call it the day of God. Notice that word waiting in verse 12 or looking in some translations. This is like sitting on the edge of your seat type of excitement and expectation of Jesus' return. We see that same word used in Titus 2.13, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When Peter and John were on their way to the temple in Acts 3, they had a, a man who was crippled, and he asked him for money, the two of them. And it tells us in Acts 3.5, this idea of expectation or waiting. And this crippled man fixed his attention on Peter and John expecting 
to receive something from them? Are you expecting, are you looking forward to the appearing of Jesus Christ? Just as an aside here, did you know that Peter is saying here that we can hasten or bring Christ to earth sooner? Some, some believe that's possible. Now we know in God's sovereign plan, he knows the day or the hour and all those things specifically. But there's also some evidence that uh, the people on earth can hasten, as this verb talks about here in verse 12. First of all, by praying, by praying, thy kingdom come, taken from the Lord's prayer. The prayers of God's people in some ways are related to the pouring out of God's wrath on the nations. In Revelation 8, it says, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of that incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Sharing Christ with the nations. Think about that. Sharing Christ to all nations. In Acts chapter three, Peter was admonishing the people he was preaching to to repent therefore. Turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Why? That the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. In Matthew 24, 14, here's a great promise for all of us, especially our missionaries. In this gospel of the kingdom, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Think about it. That's why we need to cheer on Wycliffe, Nathan and Robin Smith, and others who are translating the Bible into languages of unreached people groups so they can get the word of God in their language. We cheer on the Timothy Initiative and other ministries like it that go to unreached people groups. And can you imagine? Can you imagine the man or woman who's standing out there and begins to share the gospel, and this is the last person that's going to receive Christ, and then Jesus is going to come, and he shares the word, and the person receives Christ, and boom, probably what occurs then is the rapture, or if this is the tribulation, the second coming of Christ. What an experience that would be to be, have the privilege of leading that last person to know the Lord. And then looking forward to his appearing could hasten the return of Christ, his people longing for his return. Are you longing for it? First John 2, 28, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, he may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Do you long for the appearing of Christ? When I was in college, many of my male friends would say, I hope Jesus doesn't come back until after I get married, Right? And we have all these things we wish we could do before we leave planet Earth. But are you looking forward to his coming? And lastly today, live in the hope of a new and a perfect world. Isn't it great? We see all the problems. We all see all the earthquakes. We see the hurricane Ian through Florida. We see all the destructiveness of typhoons and other things in this world. Earthquakes. But one day, we're going to live in a world that's absolutely beautiful and perfect. 2 Peter 3.13, But according to God's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth 
in which righteousness dwells. Lastly, Christ followers are to stay motivated to serve and worship God with the promise of his coming. Think about it. I remember those days in elementary school. Believe it or not, I actually had straight A's on one or two report cards. Those were the days I couldn't wait to get home and show my parents the report card, right? And uh, get some affirmation and encouragement. Remember those days when you were either playing in the band or playing sports and your family is there and you look forward to the affirmation of a job well done. You and I were waiting for a new heaven and a new earth, a new in quality, different or unlike anything else known before, something that will never run out and have the appearance of being new all the time. It says here, which righteousness dwells. That means that word, that word dwell means to settle down, to be at home, to take a permanent and comfortable residence there. What a day that will be. Jesus, a new heaven and a new earth. No sun because God's glory will light up everything and no sin at last, just holiness and perfection. How shall we now live? Well, here's our application. Does knowing Christ's return will be sudden change your priorities in life? So you read Matthew 24, you read Joel, you read Daniel. It appears, we think anyway, but many other Christians and other generations have thought that they were in the time that Jesus would return. And it very well could happen in our lifetime, or maybe it's 100 years. But are we ready? Are we ready if he returns? And here's the question I want to leave with you. Is being in heaven with Jesus enough of heaven for you? I've heard some Christians say, well, I'm looking forward to seeing so-and-so in heaven. I'm looking forward to talking to Moses and Paul. I'm looking forward to whatever happens in heaven. But really, our focus, our joy should be that we want to be with Jesus. We want to be with him, the one who made it possible for us to go to heaven. In 1845, the ill-fated Franklin expedition sailed from England searching for the Northwest Passage. The crew loaded sailing ships with things they didn't need. A 1,200-volume library, fine china, crystal goblets, and engraved sterling silverware for each officer. Amazingly, each ship only took a 12-day of supply of coal for their auxiliary steam engines. Well, when the ships became trapped in vast frozen plains of ice, the men decided to leave the ships and began to trot on in small groups, but they didn't make it. None of them survived. One story is especially heartbreaking. Tow officers pulled a large sled more than 65 miles across the treacherous ice. When rescuers found their bodies, they discovered that the sled was filled with table silver. These men were carrying what they didn't need. But sometimes you and I, if we're honest, we do the same thing. We're carrying things that aren't going to be necessary for us in heaven. And we need to throw off anything that would entrap us and keep us unprepared for when Christ returns once again to planet Earth. Here's some questions to ponder. Are you in awe of God's grace in your life? As you think of his patience in verse 9. His, his patience with us and patience with non-believers. Are you able to see God in all of his glory? And if Jesus is all you have, are you satisfied? Is Jesus going to be heaven enough for you? Let's bow for prayer. Sobering thought to think about what Peter 
talked about in chapter 3 here. We think about our own lives and the joys that we have to look forward to, but we also need to think about those around us who, if Jesus were to return today, would not have this opportunity. So Lord, help us to live out holy and godly lives. Make that our prayer and our hope this week. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the descriptions of what it's going to be like in the future. We know we don't have all the details, but you give us enough, a picture of what is going to happen and what we can expect. And what a glorious day it will be when we are in that new heaven and that new earth, that place of perfection and beauty, and that we can be around your throne, throw down our rewards, and praise your holy and righteous and majestic name. Help us to live with that expectancy this week. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.